If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. You were lucky enough to get an exchange with the US Navy at China Lake. Tell us about this and how it came about. I was promoted to squadron leader when I was flying the Jaguar from Germany. We were actually in Decimamano uh, <coughs> in Sardinia when one of the flight commanders had flown down from Bruggen and he quietly gave me a very large brown envelope addressed to Squadron Leader Harris and the return address on the top was BDLS, British Defence Liaison Staff, Washington. At that stage I was flight lieutenant. Nobody, I didn't know I was in for promotion. Um, and he gave me the package and he says, I've no idea what it is but it looks like good news. <laughs> he then went and told the squadron commander who also <laughs> knew nothing about it, who was not a happy bunny. Um, but that was, uh, say, a Harrier related job. <clears throat> the main task was really as the AV-8B, a member of the AV-8B ASAP, Aircrew, Aircraft Systems Advisory Panel. And that was a panel that were two Marines and myself. And we used to meet at St. Louis, home of McDonnell Douglas, a great company. They know how to build aeroplanes. I mean, their heritage was the F-4, the F-15, and they were simultaneously developing the F-18 and the AVAP. And our task there was to use their simulator, discuss things with their engineers, and make certain that all the switches were where we as pilots wanted them, the functionality was what we would expect it to be, and also to integrate the weapon system through the head-up display and the multifunction displays. Mm. Um, they were a brilliant company to work with. And we used to go there every six weeks probably. Okay. Um, for three, four, five days at a time, flying the simulator and doing all this work. That was uh, the main, I suppose, main task. Uh, <coughs> while I was there, and this was before the Brits had shown any interest in the AV-8B. At that stage, the Brits were focused on the Sea Harrier. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as British aerospace was concerned, that was the best thing since sliced bread. And why would you want anything else? Um, while I was there, McDonnell Douglas very kindly offered me a flight in their YAV-8B. Wow. Now, the YAV-8B was an AV-8A fuselage with the B wings on it. And I flew that out of Whiteman Air Force Base, which is just west of St. Louis. Whiteman now is the home of the B-2 stealth bomber. But when I went there, it was a Minuteman Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Base. How I got in there as a Brit <laughs> flying a US Navy aeroplane, I have no idea. Uh, but I flew it, I only flew it the once, I got an hour and a half in it, which speaks volumes for the internal fuel because it was a clean wing, it didn't have uh, fuel tanks on it. 
Um, but the lasting impression for me was the ability in the hover to trim it out and take your hand off the stick. If you did that in this thing, you'd last for about half a second before you're grabbing hold of the stick again. In that, you could trim it out, take your hand off the stick, and if at the instant you took your hand off the stick, you'd got a knot of sideways drift, you retained a knot of sideways drift. Right. It was so much more stable. Mm -hmm. um, also with the US Navy, I flew their AV-8A. The squadron didn't have any Harriers on the squadron. And the Navy does the test and evaluation for Marine Corps flying assets as well as uh, Navy assets. So we would borrow an AV-8 from the Marine Corps for whatever tests we had to do. And at that stage, we were doing an OPEVAL, Operational Evaluation, of the AV-8C. Now, in terms of alphabet, that was the wrong way around, because all the C was was a modified A with a different weapon aiming system in it. Okay. Um, but that was fun, and I got to fire stroke drop some interesting weapons. Mm. Um, they had something called the Zuni rocket, which was a five-inch uh, forward-firing rocket, unguided. Uh, that's a big rocket. <laughs> and there were four in each pod, and you had two pods. So you'd fire eight of these little puppies, and uh, that was fun. One of the memorable trips was I was given an aeroplane with five tanks of napalm on it. Ooh. And I went to a range at Chocolate Mountain, which is down closer to Yuma than China Lake. It's an unmanned range, so all I had to do was um, drop them and see A, that they went, well not bang, that they burned, mm -hmm. uh, and that they sort of hit the target. So I went and dropped all five in one pass. Anticipating what was going to happen behind me, I immediately pulled very nose high and rolled so I could peer over my shoulder to see it. And that, uh, I mean, fortunately, there's nothing there to burn. So uh, that was fun. You were lucky enough. It's one of my favorite aircraft, the Skyhawk. Tell us about this, how, how that came about and what it was like to fly. <sighs> the A4 <coughs> was a delight. It's the only word for it. And I have to say the A4M, because the mic had yeah, the big the M, engine. Yeah. It had the P408 engine in it. We had a couple of uh, TA4s on the squadron, which had the P6, P8 engines in, and they were dogs. Yeah. The A4 mic. Now, bear in mind, I'm talking now 40 years ago. This was an obsolescent aeroplane. It was going out of service with the US Marines. Uh, we had the angle rate bombing system in the nose of it which was the system that was going into the AV-8B and RGR-5-7. It had internal active ECM, chaff and flares, radar warning. Uh, we flew it on a red flag, and the standard fit for it on red flag was with a Shrike anti-radiation missile on one outboard station, an A-9 Lima on the matching starboard outboard station. Double bubble, two fuel tanks, which gave you an hour and a half at low level without any problem. And six Mark 82, 500 pound bombs, center line. This tiny little aircraft. <laughs> Small, smokeless engine, yeah. turns on a sixpence, or for our colonial cousins, on a dime. Mm -hmm. uh, we could ingress at 540 knots true. 
and come out having dropped the bombs but retaining the, the myrrh. That was the rack that carried six bombs at 570-ish. And that, that's a pretty draggy piece of kit, the myrrh. Yeah. But you were small and that caused huge, and you had a nine lemur on board. And you can be somebody with a nine lemur on board. Mm -hmm. And so on red flag, the big boys, the F-15s, would, if, if they were doing a long distance uh, air-to-air firing, then that was irrelevant. Yeah. Once you got into a close-in fight, and I'm not talking about a, the expression of a knife fight in a telephone box, not that close, mm -hmm. uh, but they would see you and they would assume that you were an F-14 a long way away. And by the time they realised that you weren't an F-14 a long way away, but you were an A-4 very close, it was too late. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only negative to the A-4 was it had full-span leading-edge slats, which were not hydraulic or electrical, they were aerodynamic. Right. So as you slowed down for a landing, the slats would progressively, and they were just basically on rails, would progressively extend until they reached the end of their travel and they produced a huge amount of extra lift which of course was good because it reduced your landing speed which is important for landing mm -hmm. on a boat. The trouble was that if you were doing air combat and you rapidly pulled a load of G, if you weren't absolutely symmetrical you had a slight yawn one slat would come out a nanosecond before the other slat, ah. but that was long enough to generate a fairly intense roll race, which would bang your head against the canopy. So um, I think most of the pilots had helmets with scratch marks on the sides because <laughs> this, this had happened. But what a great, great aeroplane. But with the A7, you also uh, were qual uh, qualified to land on the carrier. Tell us about this and how you learned, because that must have been an experience. Right, when I arrived with the US Navy, I was on VX-5 in China Lake. Let me tell you a bit about China Lake. China Lake is in the Mojave Desert, just north of Edwards Air Force Base, just east of the bottom end of the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, a lot of flying in the States is procedural, yeah. so it involves flight plans, fixed routes, etc., etc. China Lake, we enjoyed our own airspace and we enjoyed our own airspace approximately twice the size of Wales. <laughs> Within that were some ranges which, if they, were if they were utilized, you couldn't go into, but other than that, it was free airspace, no flight plan, just off you go. Within that airspace, uh, we had the highest and the lowest points of the contiguous United States. And that's a word you're gonna go and have to look up, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, the highest point of the contiguous United States was Mount Whitney at 14,500 feet and the lowest point was Death Valley at minus 300 feet right. and everything in between and that was our playground. Uh, 365 days of blue skies and sunshine every year except on a leap year where you had 366 days mm -hmm. of blue skies and sunshine. Um, we dropped bombs on just about every sortie and lots of strange and different bombs. The first US carrier I went on to, I walked onto, and that was the USS Kitty Hawk. And I sort of crawled all over the place. And when an aircraft lands, there's an LSO, landing signals officer, who monitors every approach and landing. And he is type specific. Mm -hmm. 
and they all stand at the back left-hand side of the boat assessing every landing. Uh, so I'd go down and spend time with them watching what was going on. Um, as far as I was concerned, it was all pretty good stuff to me. Mm -hmm. They are super critical and quite rightly so. Um, the best assessment you can get is an OK3. OK means he couldn't find anything to criticise you for and three means you caught third wire of the four. Right. You don't want to catch one or two because that means you were too low over the back end and that can end up in tears. Mm -hmm. And if you catch number four, it means you are very close to a bolter. <clears throat> so an OK3 was as good as it got. Mm -hmm. And there weren't very many of them given out. There was always some measure of criticism. But I went and watched and the Kitty Hawk was operating off uh, the coast of San Diego. And they were working up for a cruise. And so there were A7s and F14s and uh, E2s and all the other things operating. And as I say, everything to me looked pretty, pretty good. But occasionally somebody would miss the wires and would bolter. And if an F14 missed a wire and bolted, it would go to full military power. That's not read. Yep. Uh, bounce back up into the air, turn downwind, come back and have another go. I watched the same pilots in the same aeroplanes, on the same ship, in the same relatively benign weather, doing the same exercise at night. <laughs> and when an F-14 missed the wire at night, he went to full afterburner reheat. And he went up and he went up and he went up. And I mean, I exaggerate for effect. He didn't turn until he was about 10,000 feet before <laughs> he came back. And it was obvious that they were well, uh, yeah. well frightened. So having watched this, the skipper of the squadron, the squadron had a full Navy captain as skipper. He was a big heavyweight squadron. Uh, and he was a great chap. And at every opportunity, I whinged and moaned at him and said, how can I call this a US Navy exchange if I don't go and land on a boat? Now, there was absolutely no need for me to go and land on a boat. Uh, <coughs> but obviously, I got to him eventually, because eventually he said, for goodness sake, let the Brit go and land on a boat. <laughs> Fortunately, at China Lake, we had a US Marine A4 qualified LSO. So he worked me up with what's known as field carrier landing practice, where you just basically, there's a light system on the end of the runway where you basically just do carrier-type landings mm -hmm. on the runway. And he worked me up on that. And when he was satisfied, <coughs> they sent me off to Texas to a Navy training base for a second opinion. Uh, I passed that, so off I went to the boat. And we took three A4s to the boat, and it was USS Lexington, which is smaller than Nimitz, but still bigger in comparison to most, certainly anything that we got uh, it's bigger than Ark Royal or anything like that. <coughs> and the other two A4s were flown by the skipper, Navy captain, Vietnam vet. He probably had five, six, seven hundred carrier landings. The, the big thing for carrier landings is a hundred. When you've reached a hundred landings, you have a centurion badge which says, hey, I've done a hundred landings. The other A4 pilot was my boss. He was a Navy commander ex-Vietnam vet, he probably had four or five hundred carrier landings, and me, with zero. <laughs> uh, I was the third, so they went and landed on the boat, clearly no big deal for them. 
And then I went and landed. The first approach you do with the hookup and you do a touch and go. When you do the approach in the A4, you have the air brakes out. That means that the, the engine is running at higher RPM, so it'll spool up quicker mm -hmm. if you need full power. And the brief is that when you hit the deck, you immediately go air brakes in and select full power. So that if you miss a wire, you're already starting yeah. the spool up of the engine to, to bolter. Well, my first landing, I hit the deck and caught a wire. Now, I'd done arrested landings on an airfield, and they're relatively benign. I mean, it's obviously a whole lot quicker than yeah. a drag chute or normal landing, but they're relatively benign. Landing on a boat is violent. It is a silly way to land an aeroplane, hence the <laughs> it's better to stop and then land and land and then stop. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, when I hit the deck, my knee pad came off my knee and went round to the front of my leg. My hands came off the throttle and the stick Ooh. with the deceleration, which was way more than I was expecting. But my brain was programmed, as soon as I hit the deck, to put the air brakes in and select full power. Well, I think I selected air brakes in and went full power about the time I came to a complete stop on board the boat. At which stage the boat said, it's all right, we've got you, you can throttle back. <laughs> so uh, you then go back out on for another launch. So I did six in the A4. Uh, I was then allowed to go back on in the A7. It's a very different beast. Uh, and I did 10 in the A7. Right. The, different, the major difference for me between the A7 and the A4, the A4 is launched on a strop and it's got lousy nose wheel steering. <clears throat> so they put someone with a tiller on the front to actually do the steering. The A7's got very accurate nose wheel steering and instead of a strop it's got a T-bar on the nose wheel. So you have to follow the marshaller's signals very carefully and it's done by body language almost um, to get the T-bar into the, uh, the catapult. Also, as soon as you land and you start manoeuvring, you've got to fold your wings. Well, hey, no big deal, I was used to doing that on the airfield. Well, except on the boat, you fold the wings up, and then when you come to a stop, if you can, you fold them down and lock them. Because if you're behind a jet blast deflector or another aircraft, they don't want to damage the hinges, I guess, on the wings when they're unlocked. Then it's your turn to shuffle forward, so you have to fold the wings again turn around the corner, put your wings back down. So you spend your whole time, like a sort of pregnant pigeon, I suppose, opening and closing your wings. But uh, great experience. Absolutely. Uh, and you mentioned for the A4 there, you managed to drop some bombs, or you, what can you tell us about that, or what it could carry at the time? Well, red flaggers say we had six Mark 82, 500 pound bombs. Um, between well, I say we, we dropped a lot of practice bombs, but we also dropped a, a huge number of high explosive and, and other bombs. It was a fairly regular event. One of the things we did, and I was in an A4 on this, was we went and sank a destroyer. It was the USS Cunningham, 
or as our colonial cousins would say, Cunningham. Cunningham. Very bad American accent, sorry about that. Um, and it was a hulk that they had cleaned of all petrol oils and lubricants, etc. So it was a clean hulk that they towed out into the Pacific and we went and sank it. And it was a mixed formation. The A6 was doing the laser designating and we had A7s and A4s, I was in A4, dropping laser-guided bombs on it, which would hit the ship and go bang, and there'd be a sort of a flash and a sparkle, and then nothing would happen. So another bomb would be dropped, same event. And I guess what sinks ships is fire. Mm. So you need hydraulic fluid or fuel or something to burn, and that then presumably is what causes the chaos that... Um, perhaps weakens the hull and down it goes. Mm -hmm. And it was getting a wee bit frustrating because by now we're sort of running out of bombs and this wretched hulk was still sitting there afloat. And what actually sank it was a miss. It was a very near miss, but it was a Mark 84 bomb, which was a 2,000 pound bomb, yeah. that landed a beam amidships very close in on the water and it took the side of the ship out. Right. That let the seawater in, down it went. So that was fun. The other, and again I repeat, this is 40 years ago. One of the other weapons I enjoyed dropping was a walleye TV guided bomb. Now this was an Erdl, E-R-D-L, walleye TV guided bomb. And it was a glide bomb, it had big sort of delta fins on it. And if my memory is right, from 25,000 feet, you dropped it from about 25 miles. The first aeroplane to drop, dropped his, would lock onto the sort of approximate target area. And then he would turn around and run away bravely <coughs> and go home for tea and medals. Uh, I was in the second aeroplane. I was about 40 miles in trail. Mm -hmm. And I was then data linked to his bomb. And as the bomb got closer, so the target definition became more specific and you can then update what the bomb is locked onto and it's contrast locked. Mm -hmm. So if you're going against a building, initially it'll probably lock onto the roof or the floor or something. But if you're told to go to the top left-hand window of the building, you can then update the lock. Uh, that bomb goes in, very difficult not to blink at the last minute when it hits. Uh, then you drop your bomb turn around and run away bravely for tea and medals uh, and your data linked to your own bomb and you mm -hmm. do exactly the same for your own bomb so if you if the if the designated point of impact was the top left hand window and you missed it with his bomb then you had a second crack at it with yours mm -hmm. you know that is the sort of technology that we were using in the eight in yeah the late 70s early 80s and if we'd had that in 82 down south yeah. life would have been so much different. <laughs> the, trouble, the trouble is that it does require clear weather yeah. um, and we were fixated, we were blinkered on European weather and low cloud mm -hmm. to the point that those were the only weapons we had so we actually had no option but to go in at low level. Uh, it would have been nice to have a choice because the other thing with VX5 we did a red flag and red flag is a brilliant exercise, a uh, high threat, really testing exercise, which as far as I was concerned was a low level exercise. Well, 
with VX5, they said, right, we're going in medium level. And I sulked for about half an hour and kicked the can down the road. I thought, here we are in red flag, opportunity to go and do some real proper stuff, and we're going at a bloody medium level, I don't believe it. Well, I was completely wrong. <laughs> and this is where I say it, it's the blinkers, and you need, you need to be aware that there are other ways to do things. And we flew in on this Alpha Strike, mixed formation. We had F-14s as fighter escort, not way out in front of us, close into the formation. Every aeroplane was armed with at least one AIM-9 Lima. A-7s could carry two without losing a weapon station. And laser-guided bombs, A-6 with laser designator and an electric A-6, an EA-6B. So we flew in at medium level. The F-14s simulated the launch of the Phoenix missile because they had two F-5s attached to them. Mm -hmm. And when they were <coughs> theoretically launching a Phoenix, they'd fire one of these F-5s out ahead to say, pretend you're a Phoenix. Yeah. Um, the, ele the electric A-6 would electronically sanitize, that's a word that's being used a lot at the moment, <laughs> uh, sanitize the area. And we all had Shrike on. Now the Shrike, that's, I mean, that was the available anti-radiation missile of the day. Limited, uh, frequency coverage, but if you mixed and matched the seeker heads of the Shrikes, you could cover the, the prospective threats. And the plan was that you preemptively fired these things, and as I understand it, a radar operator, if he sees a missile inbound, switches his radar off, because he doesn't want to, yeah. want to land on his head. And if they've done an emergency shutdown of the radar, I don't think you can simply time out the missile and then switch it back on again and carry on as if nothing's happened. So we could preemptively launch these strikes, which they gave us credit for. The, the electric A6 would do all the electronic order of battle stuff. The F-14s did the air-to-air -air stuff. And we went in and we plinked the target with laser-guided bombs. And it was, frankly, dead easy. During the sortie, one F-15 came to the formation. And it then became an argument of, I got you before you got me, right. type things. Frankly, if we'd had live AIM-9s on, he wouldn't have been there. No, no, of course not. He might have got one or two aeroplanes, but he'd have died in the <laughs> process. Uh, so, yeah, that was another good thing at VX-5. Uh, other things at China Lake. Two things, the guns for the AV-8B. The AV-8A has got the 30mm cannon. Uh, the standard issue American is a Gatling gun, 20mm Vulcan and they had developed a 25mm variant of the GAU-8, we all know is the 30mm gun the A-10 has got, mm -hmm. called it the GAU-12, um, and they put three guns out on a test bed, on a range, with a tank at the end. They said, right, we'll go and fire these and see what you think. So the Marine and I went out to watch this, <coughs> and they fired the 30mm cannon, and again I exaggerate for effect, it went boom, 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 and shells came out and went up and gravity took over and they came down and they hit the tank and they sparkled and thought yeah, okay they then fired the 20 millimeter Vulcan which gave a very ladylike breaking of wind and the bullets went almost in a straight line to the tank lots of sparkling and uh, then they fired this GAU 12 25 mil and the bullets went out in a straight line no discernible gravity drop 
and the tank reverted to its airfix component parts. And I looked at the Marine and he looked at me and we said, we'll have one of those, please. <laughs> um, the other thing they had, China Lake had a snort. It's nothing to do with cocaine or heroin or whatever it is that you snort. Um, supersonic Naval Ordnance Research Track. And it was in the desert, it was a, basically a long, straight railway line. And they could run things, as it says, supersonic if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. One of the things about ejecting from an aeroplane, uh, quite apart from the capability of the seat, it depends hugely on the attitude of the aeroplane and the rate of descent of the aeroplane. So if your wing's level with no rate of descent, that's good. If you're 90 degrees angle of bank with a rate of descent, that's bad. <laughs> so again, some brain surgeon decided what was needed was a vertical seeking seat, so that when the seat came out of the cockpit, it would go up, irrespective of the attitude of the aeroplane. Right. Which seemed like a jolly good wheeze. And they obviously reckoned they'd got this sussed because they did a test using an EA-6B simulated EA-6B cockpit mm -hmm. on this snort uh, upside down. And I thought, I've got to go and watch this. <laughs> so the four seats came out and fair dues, they came out downwards and then went up. And it was a spectacular display. It was the best firework display I've ever seen. And considerably more expensive. Of uh, I'm not certain it ever went into service, but mm -hmm. the, the concept was, mm -hmm. was proven. The A7E was a remarkably capable aeroplane. It wasn't as much fun to fly as the A4, but it could carry an enormous weapon load and it had incredible capability. Uh, one of the things that we had, and again I repeat, I've said this before and I'll probably say it again, 40 years ago, it was configured with a forward-looking infrared pod, which was carried on the starboard inner pylon. That gave an infrared picture through the head-up display, <coughs> which was a wide-angle head-up display, probably double what I was used to with the Harrier and the Jaguar. Um, it also had a very, very accurate inertial navigation system. Uh, if you've got a mile accuracy at the end of an hour in a Harrier, you're happy. <laughs> if you've got a mile accuracy at the end of two hours in an A7, you were unhappy. <laughs> uh, it also had radar. Now, I'd never used radar before. Uh, and we had two standards of radar. One was raw radar, and the purists liked the raw radar. The other one was something called a digital scan converter which because I had no experience with radar, I preferred the digital scan converter, where basically a computer did all the hard work. And you could set into the radar a set clearance plane of let's say 200 feet. And what that said was, if there's any ground that I'm not going to clear by 200 feet, mm -hmm. show it to me. Right. So you could fly around, and I say, you know, the valley's 14,500 feet down to minus 300 feet, so we have some proper valleys. Yeah. Uh, flying around with three independent sensors, the FLIR pod through the head-up display, the inertial nav system, very accurate, and the radar showing you where the terrain was. Um, I would have been very confident to fly that at 200 feet that night in hilly terrain. Really? Yeah. I dropped wall eyes with the A7 as well as the A4, 
Lots of air combat, it wasn't very good at air combat. I've heard that before. <laughs> um, but it was a great, great aeroplane. It's not a looker, but I would say. <laughs> well, it, I think it was affectionately, or not affectionately, known as a slough. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> a short, little, ugly, and just in case we're ahead of the watershed, we'll call it fella. There we go. <laughs> okay, F-16. My USAF exchange, I was at Langley Air Force Base. I wanted to fly the F-16. That was my first choice, so I focused on that and went to go and fly it. Your face says that all. What an aeroplane. I mean, just uh, magnificent. There are people who will tell you that the Hunter was the Jet Age Spitfire. F-16. F-16 all the way. F-16 was just amazing. Yeah. Uh, a 9G aeroplane. Yeah. 9G is very, very tiring. And also, if you look at your videos of F-16, F-15 pilots, you'll notice they don't have necks. I've, yeah. Their heads come straight out of their shoulders. <laughs> because if you are looking over your shoulder and you've got a neck and you pull 9G, it hurts. I've heard that, yeah. Uh, it's also incredibly fatiguing. Uh, you start off at 9G and if you're doing 1v1 against an F-16, like with all aeroplanes, you end up at base height with minimum speed. Yeah. It's just very, very close in. Mm -hmm. And you're still pulling a fair amount of G, but not 9G. Yeah. Very tiring. Um, the other thing that struck me with the F-16, there's always been argy-bargy about air-to-air -air refueling. Mm. Probe and drogue versus boom. Well, the US Navy has to do probe and drogue because you can't get a boom-equipped aeroplane yeah. onto a carrier. Uh, we obviously use probe and drogue. The advantages of probe and drogue on most tankers is you can refuel two aircraft at a time. Yeah. The advantage of the boom is that you can put about a double flow rate of fuel through the boom. More importantly, if not most importantly, it puts the stress of connecting on somebody lying in a prone position in a tanker rather than you jousting with the basket in one of these things. And the first time I air-to-air refueled in an F-16 was at night. Uh, I'd been briefed, got under the tanker, and there are lights that tell you whether, when you're in the right position for mm -hmm. the boom operator to stab you. Uh, I got underneath the tanker and I couldn't see these lights. I thought, where are these sodding lights? They've got to be here somewhere. They're not very bright because they don't want to damage your night vision. Mm -hmm. um, and while I was thinking, where are these sodding lights? I got stabbed by the boom operator. <laughs> so I thought, well, clearly I'm about in the right place, so I'll stay, where, I'll stay where I am. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I picked the lights up. But uh, totally, well, almost totally stress-free. So yeah, Peter, what did you do uh, briefly uh, tell us what you did after your US exchange? Okay, after the US exchange, uh, <clears throat> in fact, let me finish a bit with the US exchange because I was out at headquarters tactical air command TAC for Gulf War One and that was an amazing experience watching the power of yeah. the US Air Force go to war. Uh, the two full colonels that were in the division that I was in had both been hoiked out to the Middle East to run the air operations centre. I'd been notified of promotion so within the USAF system I was uh, selected and in the USAF system when you're selected you effectively wear the rank <coughs> that right. you're going to go into. Yeah. So I was put into a position uh, 
sort of running the division, although in fairness there wasn't a lot going on because everything was concentrating on the Gulf War. But the TACDO two-star general, absolute sterling star character. Mm -hmm. uh, best general I've ever worked for. He was utterly brilliant. Uh, he let me into all his briefings. And I was seeing stuff that, frankly, I probably shouldn't have seen. Um, but the 117 was in the black program still. Prior to it coming out, the two colonels, uh, one had been either the first or second USAF pilot to fly the 117. The other colonel was the third, fourth or fifth. I may have the numbers wrong, but it was mm -hmm. that order of magnitude. <clears throat> I'd been walking through a mall in Norfolk, Virginia, and I'd gone past a model aircraft shop and I saw a 117 model which I bought and I glued it all together and stuck it on the cabinet by my desk and it took about two minutes before these two colonels were there. It was still in the black but they looked at it and their body language told me it was pretty accurate. Uh, for example, the F-117 has got four little pitot tubes on the front, yeah. one right on the tip of the nose, one on the left, and two on the right. They'd got that right. How did they do that? I have no idea. The, the intakes were right. What they hadn't worked out was that if the air's going in at the front, it's got to come out at the back, and they got that bit wrong. But other than that, it was remarkably good. Especially for the time. And when the 117 went out to the Middle East, they staged through Langley prior to crossing the Atlantic, and I went out to watch the first one land. And there were 24 of them lined up on the pan at Langley. And someone said to me, you've got to go and look at this. You'll never see this again. <clears throat> but watching the Gulf War from the safety of Langley, uh, with all of the flow of information that was coming through to the general, was fascinating. After that, uh, back to the UK, I went into operational requirements in the Ministry of Defence for a very short time. After Larbrook, a staff college course, and then promoted to one star, and I was the senior air staff officer of one group. That was in an era when, post-Gulf War I, uh, the JFAC concept was being developed, Joint Forces Air Component Commander. So you had a maritime component yes. commander, a land component commander. And I was the nominated one-star JFAC. I spent two weeks, I think, on the USS Mount Whitney, which was a command and control ship running a purple exercise off the eastern seaboard of the States. Got a little bit of helicopter flying in there as well. And then I was sent out to the Middle East as commander of British forces for what was called Operation Bolton, which was the reinforcement of... Kuwait with tornadoes <clears throat> and I was based at the headquarters of JTF SWAR, Joint Task Force Southwest Asia, run by a two-star USAF general with a one-star American admiral. One-stars in the US Navy are called admirals. Yeah. Uh, while I was there, he said that he was going out to visit Nimitz, which was in the Gulf, and would I like to accompany him? I thought about it for half a nanosecond and said, yes. <laughs> he then said, would you like to have a flight? So I thought about it for half a nanosecond and said, <laughs> yes. He said, what would you like to fly in, F-14 or an F-18? I had to think for a little bit longer, probably a whole second. 
Uh, F-18 was obviously the shiny new machine, the F-14 wasn't, uh, but it had to be the F-14. I'd seen Top Gun, Final Countdown, have you seen Final that countdown, film? Yeah. It had to be the F-14. <clears throat> so I went and flew a catapult shot, and a, I, sorry, I didn't fly it, I was sitting in the boot, uh, and a trap on limits in the 14, which I loved. It was by that stage, it wasn't called a Tomcat, it was called a Bombcat, because they started to put air-to-ground stuff on it. And it had the lantern pod on it. Now, I was given the two-minute ground school on the lantern pod in the cockpit, and the integration of it was so superb that after about 20 minutes of playing with it in the air, I'd have quite happily knocked on and designated a target. Because, oh, really? Oh, it was superb piece of kit. So that was my Nimitz trip. While I was there, the US Navy had reinforced and they had three carrier battle groups in the Gulf. And we had sent our mighty Illustrious to join them. Now, Illustrious was very, very popular with the US Navy mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, politically, it showed coalition rather than just US. More importantly, if the guys on board the big carriers could do a cross deck, Illustrious was the nearest pub they could get to, <laughs> yeah, they could get yeah. a drink. <laughs> but they decided they wanted to take a photograph of all four carriers steaming line abreast. So I said, please, can you make certain Illustrious is closest to the camera? <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to look very sad. That was interesting. It was Gulf War one and a half. Uh, it, it, Kofi Annan came back with a piece of paper saying, peace in our time. We, we were prepared, preparing to launch when hold. Yeah. So that was the end to that. Then we became, I was then promoted to two-star. And I went and spent six months in Sarajevo on a UN job while Kosovo had mm. kicked off. One of the concerns of the UN was that the Bosnian-Herzegovina airspace wasn't infringed. Right. And one of your interviewees needs to take a hard, long look at his navel um, because we were assured that the USAF would not infringe that airspace. Mm -hmm. But I was frequently woken up in the middle of the night by supersonic bangs. Now, there's only one nation I can think of that was doing that. And we did on one occasion have an F-15 on the ground in Sarajevo who diverted there with an emergency. So your F-15 pilot who tells his stories about going for the MiG-29s and things, I just wonder if he woke me up a few times. Probably. <laughs> uh, after that, I was AOC-1 group. The demise of 11 group, which was disbanded, we took over the 11 group assets, which was the Tornado F-3 and BBMF. I went and flew the Tornado F-3 lovely aeroplane. I mean, at least it's the right proportions, which the GR never was. <laughs> My favourite aircraft. Um, it, it, very slippery, very quick. Uh, I mean, in, in, in fairness, it's not a true fighter in the sense of the F-15, yeah. F-16. But in terms of interceptor, it was brilliant. Plus, of importance, in the Middle East, the airspace was controlled by AWACS. Now, F-15s had lots of missiles, very capable aeroplane. What the F-3 contributed was a guy in the back, the yes. navigator. Mm -hmm. And with Jated's, 
uh, he had a good air picture of what was going on and the AWACS could delegate a bubble of airspace to the F3s yes. and say, okay, that bubble is now being looked after by them mm -hmm. so we can concentrate on the other things. So the F3 was very much valued by the US. I enjoyed flying it, as I say, very fast, very slick, uh, nice aeroplane to fly. To my dying day, will regret that I'm too nice a guy. There are a lot of people who won't agree with that. I'm too nice a guy. Once BBMF came to me, I said, Yahoo, I'm going to go and fly the Spitfire. Mm. So I went up to Coningsby. I flew the BBMF chipmunk to prove that I could still land a tail dragon. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain my first few landings necessarily proved that point, but I did get better. But it was the start of the display season. So I said, OK, I'll not bother you while the display season's on. But when it's over, uh, I want to fly the Spitfire. Unfortunately, the Air Force gave me a short notice posting out of AOC One Group into a job in the permanent joint headquarters, mm. which I hated. Uh, so I never got to fly the Spit. <sighs> I did fly. One of the last sorties was in a Canberra T4. Okay. Yep. And when I'd gone through training, we'd lost a lot of Canberra's practicing engine failures after takeoff, and they'd stopped doing it. And I said, I'd like to see what the issue is. So I think the minimum height was 5,000 feet where they practiced this. So we clambered up to 5,000 feet, <coughs> got down to takeoff speed, full power on the two engines, and now we'll throttle one back. And it is a violent role. And I can understand why we lost aeroplanes. And that was knowing it was coming. So if you get an yeah, engine yeah. failure after takeoff yeah. and you don't know it's coming, that would be even worse. After the PJHQ job, they offered me or said I was lined up for two jobs at the next rank up, neither of which appealed. So I said, enough's enough. And I quit and retired. So, Peter, do you have any hobbies? In the traditional sense, probably not. I don't like golf. <laughs> uh, I like flying, and I still go along and fly as often as I can afford to. Um, <clears throat> I suppose travel. And I suspect that stems from going out to Kenya at the age of seven. Yes. Yeah. Um, I get very restless if I spend too long anywhere. Itchy feet. <laughs> yeah. So... I like to get out and about and see things. Um, and inevitably, I get caught with do-it-yourself at home. Mm -hmm. I hate having workmen in the house. So if I can do it, I will. And I'll yeah. only call somebody in if I absolutely can't. <clears throat> and in fact, over this lockdown period, um, I think I've done about three years of DIY wow. in three months. <laughs> but my wife is never short of a list of things oh, that God. she wants to do. <laughs> So, Peter, this could be a pretty difficult one for you because you've flown so many, but favourite aircraft you have flown? I like them all. <laughs> you have to pick one. I'm going to pick it down. It's Desert Island desk, so you it's get It's a Desert one. Island one, yeah. <laughs> I want to say the Harrier. I want to say the A4. I'd like to say the Jaguar, the A7. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, uh, this. There's a first guess. I'm going to let you pick them all. I love the F-16. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And is there one aircraft you wish you could have flown? 
there's not a pilot in this country that won't say Spitfire to that, but... I would like to have flown the SR-71. Well, I wasn't expecting that. But if this is Desert Island Discs, and you're only going to let me have one choice, mm -hmm. I would like to fly the Space Shuttle. Wow, that's the first time. I've never heard that one before. That's a good one. That is a good one. I, I can't think of anything better than going up to space and then instead of landing in a capsule in the water, you know, well done SpaceX, but landing space shuttle. That's a good one. I'd, I'd love to have done that. Perfect.